and welcome to Shelf Healing, UCL's bibliotherapy podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Markwick. Our guest today is Ian Livingston. Ian Livingston, CBE, is one of the founding fathers of the UK games industry and co-created a whole new genre of books with the fighting fantasy series of children's books. He co-founded Games Workshop in 1975 and brought games such as Lara Croft to avid gamers in the 90s. The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, the first fighting fantasy gamebook, was published in 1982 and has sold over 17 million copies in, I think, 30 languages. Ian's on many advisory boards and has received many awards for his contribution to the video game industry over the years. He has a new book written with Steve Jackson called Dice Men Games Workshop 1975 to 1985, which will be published by Unbound in the autumn this year, 2021. The first question to get us started should be, fingers crossed, nice and easy. Do you feel that reading is therapeutic? Reading is wonderful in multiple ways, but the most important thing for me is that it, it stimulates the imagination like no other kind of medium. I mean, they say video games stimulate the senses, but reading stimulates the imagination in the same way that role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons stimulates the imagination. And the, the imagination is, is so powerful that every story is different to each person. There's no preconceived images of what the characters and the environments or the adversaries are. So that's that's wonderful in itself. And, and the fact that we can all have our own little individual adventure in our minds is uh, a very compelling experience, as long as the story is in itself compelling. Yeah. That, that idea of compelling stories, I think, is is quite essential to that whole new genre of books that you co-created in the 80s. Those sort of that idea of that multiple choice idea of a, of a book. Was it that sort of agency that, that drew you to that idea or did it just sort of come to you in a flash of, of inspiration? It happened really as a result of events we used to put on at Games Workshop Obviously, we started Games Workshop in 1975. We became distributors of Dungeons & Dragons and were manic, obsessive players of Dungeons & Dragons. Here was a game, a milestone in gaming history. It was three rule books in a box, which didn't look very much, but as soon as you opened the box, it opened your imagination like no other game had ever done before. And I don't think any game ever will again. It was more of a designer game kit than a game in itself. One person had to design a labyrinth of rooms and passageways in a dungeon, and the other players took on roles of heroes and wizards and clerics and thieves. And through role-playing their character types, they would navigate their way through the dungeon master's dungeon, killing monsters and finding treasure and acting in character. It was effectively theatre on the fly. And... (laughs) Having played this for many, many years and selling Dungeons and Dragons through Games Workshop, we used to run these events called Games Day. And at one particular Games Day in 1979, uh, the editor from Penguin Books was there with a stand selling, I think, a playing politics book that they'd launched. And she was fascinated by how enthusiastic everybody was playing role playing games, DD in particular. And she said, to Steve, Steve Jackson, my business partner, and I, would you like to write a book about this this hobby of role-playing? And we said, well, rather than write a book about the hobby, why don't we create a book that gives you an experience of what that hobby is? 
that role-playing experience. And she thought that was a great idea. And um, so we <laughs> we'd realized we kind of presented ourselves a bit of a problem, how we're going to do this. So we thought we would just take the essence of a role-playing game and substitute the dungeon master with a book itself, giving people multiple choice. But we just didn't want a simple branching narrative. We wanted that, that gaming element. So we decided to act a, to add a, a, a very simplified game system to that to present uh, the player or reader with a, an interactive experience with a game system attached to it. So we created three attributes, skill, stamina, and luck, and those would be going up and down throughout the adventure. But the book itself was a was 400 paragraphs, um, which if you read sequentially made no sense whatsoever. It was effectively a, a story that was broken into multiple choices. At the end of each paragraph, you were presented with a choice. If you want simplistically, if you want to turn left, go to 71. If you wanted to turn right, turn 142. And then there were problems as well and puzzles that people had to solve. So there were riddles and, and and if you found a key in one room, you'd be able to open a door further on in the dungeon. So there were hundreds of ways of going through book, the books, but only one correct way. So we set about creating what we called the magic quest, this concept for this, this book, and went back to Geraldine Cook, who was the editor, and she was fascinated and, and thought it's an amazing idea, uh, pretty radical for the time because there was nothing, you know, the, no interactive books around, and she took it to her. MD, who apparently laughed so hard, nearly hit his head on the table. So it was a preposterous idea that no one could possibly want anything other than a linear narrative. But to her credit, she persisted with with her belief in it and took about a year for her to convince the powers that be at Penguin that they should publish this book. So Steve and I said about writing it, and we renamed it as The Warlock of Firetop Mountain because we thought that would speak to our role-playing audience. And it was launched in August 1982 with not much fanfare, to be honest. I think we did more promotion ourselves through our own magazine, White Dwarf, than Penguin Books did because they had really no idea what a a role-playing book was. I mean, it just looked looked like a normal book. But as soon as it kind of hit the playground and that uh, the, the power, the word of mouth was the virality of the day. And so pockets of schools around the country became... You know, hugely obsessed with with the books, and um, and they reprinted, I think, the Warlock some fifteen times in the first couple of months because they still didn't have belief in this kind of strange interactive book. And they were very, uh, I mean, I'm happy to tell you about some of the tales of of how people thought they were a threat to society in many ways. If that's of interest. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Well, for example, um, the Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide saying, because you're going to interact with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil. I mean, just the reason, <laughs> isn't it? A, a worried housewife in deepest suburbia phoned up her local radio station and said that having read one of my books, her child levitated. <laughs> so... The, the kids were thinking, oh, right, for £1.50, I can fly, can I? That's- I can fly, yeah. <laughs> the local vicar at Peng Ram Penguin Books, who were then, then in Chelsea, threatened to chain himself to their railings until our books were banned. Wow. Magazine articles written 
saying that children's imaginations are being stimulated too much because of these books. They were burnt in 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 South Africa. No uh, <laughs> protest was. There were petitions sent into Penguin Books in the in the UK saying oh, we the understand undersign what fighting fancy game books banned because our children are spending too much time with them when we're worried about the the content of them. Of course, this was all. There's no such thing really as bad publicity, and, and people thought they were. Uh, Amazing. But at the same time, teachers are beginning to wake up to the fact that, hey, these are actually quite good for reluctant readers. They're great for critical thinking. The agency given to the reader was empowering and that you could you could fail, but that but then you would immediately want to start over again and, and, and try again and encourage creativity in terms of writing or in terms of art because we had these wonderful uh, realistic illustrations both on the cover and inside the books themselves. And over time, they realized that they actually improved literacy by 17% because people are so, hey, Dad, what's the sarcophagus? Um <laughs> You know, children want to know everything about these worlds because it stimulated the imagination in many ways through the agency. They imagined themselves in the shoes of the character that they were being in these books. They weren't. It wasn't a passive experience like most books are, where you may or may not relate to the to the the main character. This is a book in which you, the reader, are the hero. And of course, if it's all about you, that's a lot more powerful, a lot more engaging, and ultimately a lot more successful. So, yeah, they were enormously successful in in, in the eighties, and I'm delighted that they're still in print today, albeit not selling the same kind of numbers. But you know, they've survived the test of time, which is fantastic. They have. Uh, that that leads nicely into my next question: is that there's something very special about the create your own adventure? aspect to the game books that calls out to, like you said, reluctant readers and helps improve literacy and also gives that sense of of bibliotherapy, you know, being able to have agency within a book and change the narrative as you go you go through has obviously made a huge difference to a number of, of people's lives. And like you said, with with the the increased literacy rate and the word of mouth and the kids thinking for one pound fifty we can learn to levitate. Was that something that you thought of when you were when you were writing them? Did you think they'd have that kind of impact on the kids reading them? Had absolutely no, no idea. We were just you know delighted that our first book was in print and you know, run into W. H. Smith and look on the shelf and there it was. That was a huge moment. Had no idea that it would be successful because Penguin had no expectations whatsoever about the, the sales potential. As I said, they only printed like 10,000 copies and, and were pretty much convinced that they weren't going to sell those. But um, no, nobody had any idea just how, how well they would, they would succeed. I mean, they're effectively you know, video games before video games around it. Uh, being able to control the destiny of your own character was a pretty interesting concept for people. But Yeah, it's that idea, you know, of people see themselves in books, but with the game books, you are in the book. Like you said, you are the character. There are no other characters. The reader is the character. Yeah. And then loads of people cheated, of course, you know, of peeking, <laughs> around the, peeking around the corner. I used to see people on public transport, you know, on buses and trains with their, what I called the five, five-fingered bookmark because they had their fingers in multiple pages. But that's absolutely fine with me. 
you know, if, as long as you're enjoying it and, uh, and you're reading. The important thing is that they got children reading. And um, it's funny what you think is, you know, what qualifies as reading? Because in education today, you know, the school automatically things or the you know, part for education perhaps things that you must start children off with, with Shakespeare. And I think it doesn't matter if it's comics or fighting fancy game books. As long as you learn to love reading, you can move on to Shakespeare as and when you're ready. So often as a case, you hear that children are put off reading because they're started on, on Shakespeare before they're ready. Obviously, some teachers adapt Shakespeare kind of to be a contemporary experience, which is brilliant, of course. But those who don't risk alienating children from the joy of reading. And I remember being on Saturday Superstore back in the 80s. I had like number one, two and three in the bestsellers list. And I had to talk through the top 10 with, uh, it was with John Craven. And we went from 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. You know, he asked me well, what was in, what was good about this book, that book, and this one. We finally got to 3, 2, and 1. And he kind of looked at me with a kind of slightly puzzled face, expression, and said, uh, yeah, but when are you going to write a proper book? Oh, no. And, uh, well, it, they, they are books, and they're getting children reading. Is that not the important aspect here to get children to understand the joy of reading is surely the ambition of, of any author. Yeah, definitely. Is, is there a particular book that's profoundly affected you in your life? Uh, the one that I really related to when I was younger was probably On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And uh, you know, I was always a bit of a nonconformist at school. I didn't do very well. I only got one. A level, the worst possible grade. I didn't go to university. Um, I used to like playing games. I played chess for the school. About the thing I enjoyed. I, I, I liked. You know, I, I tend to think myself as as not an academic. I like learning by doing. I like creativity. I like new things, and I don't like being processed, which I thought I was at school. And I somehow managed to get my O-levels to enable them to go to sixth form. But the head teacher said, no, Livingstone, I know you've you've passed your O-levels, but don't you think you'd rather be better off going to work in a garage or something than uh, kind of wasting your time studying for A-levels? I guess, you know, it's a strange way to try and motivate people. <laughs> so, but I thought, well, I'm definitely going to go into sixth form if you think I shouldn't be there. But, um, yeah, I guess he was proven right because I did find it excruciating and didn't try very hard. Mm. You have obviously had a very long and successful career in the games industry. Is there a particular game that you return to over and over again, like comfort food, but sort of in, in game form? Well, I'm too old now to enjoy any sort of Twitch games that involves fast so I just get completely destroyed by anyone <laughs> half my age or younger. So I don't bother with those too much. I do enjoy playing board games. Um, I'm sitting in a room of uh, a collection of over a thousand board games, and I still enjoy playing video games. But the ones that I like playing are more strategy games, games like Civilization, uh, where you're kind of planning ahead and, and trying to find optimum solutions to, to problems rather than just Twitch gameplay, as I say, which is just doesn't suit my my numbed reflexes. But board games I find wonderful because um, 
not not quite as wonderful during the pandemic, but when you're sitting around a table with like-minded friends and enjoying, you know, doing deals and stabbing them in the back and uh, and just messing around with the bits and in in the boxes, uh, it's a great social experience. And uh, I spent many hours. I've, I've run this thing called the Games Nightclub since the eighties. The same six people in it. <laughs> And I write a newsletter after each uh, session. I've written 470 newsletters wow. now, I think. <laughs> and uh, we keep uh, scores of every game played and I tally them up at the end of the year. We have this trophy. It's a kind of a spoof, spoof <laughs> gentleman's <laughs> club. But it's really the newsletter just to really uh, to assassinate the characters of uh, my fellow games players. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Are you are you a five player or a six player? There are six. We are six, but it's usually only five turn up, and it's very hard to find good six player games. But the games we we like to play are kind of mid core Euro games, like um, Splendor and Ticket to Ride and um, Century Spice Road and Kalis and that kind of stuff. Not too heavy and certainly not too light. And you said you write, well, you've written many newsletters. You've written children's books, obviously, and you're currently writing your, your book about Games Workshop with Steve Jackson. And obviously, you co-wrote a lot of, a lot of that, except for your newsletters. Do you find yeah. there's a difference in how you feel when you write alone compared to when you write with someone like Steve? Well, <laughs> we only actually wrote one book together, the first one, All of Fire Top Mountain simply because it was an absolute nightmare to try and do it with a branch of the book because you're handing over like four books at once to somebody to explain yeah. where all the items are in the first half of the adventure. So in Warlock, I wrote the adventure up to the river, on which there were three crossing points I created, and he wrote what happened beyond the river, eventually meeting Zagor, the, the Warlock himself. But um, trying to get consistency of, of consistency in style and tone and and descriptive narrative is is really impossible so with, with warlock it effectively needed a, a rewrite who steve kind of edited the whole thing through after we tried to fuse the two halves together so we thought never again so we then after that alternated with um he wrote one, I wrote one. He wrote a Citadel of Chaos, I wrote Forest of Doom. And then I wrote you know, City of Thieves and Death Trap Dungeons. That's some of my early favourites. And then we actually couldn't keep up with demand because we were running Games Workshop during the day, Dungeons & Dragons at first, and then we created, we lost the exclusivity on D&D. And so that's how Warhammer came about. And we launched Warhammer and a whole bunch of Games Workshop board games and Citadel Miniatures and White Dwarf Magazine. And so the time, and at the same time, Penguin books were demanding more and more Finding Fancy game books because they couldn't believe how amazingly successful they become. So we had like social lives of a slug <laughs> and, and it was impossible to do everything. So that's how the Present series of Finding Fancy books came along. So it was all Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone Presents. It was um, effectively ghost written where we kind of set out the plots and it would be fleshed out by the, the guest author. But, um, you know, I've written over 15 of, of my own. Uh, the last one was Assassins of Alancia that came out in 2019. 
And as you know, more recently, um, I've been writing uh, The Diceman. Again, it's it's one I've written about 90-odd percent of it, and Steve's chipped in where he's able when he has had time to do so. And um, But again, for consistency style, it's t- it's been on me this time to write the bulk of, of the book. But it's been great fun talking to all our employees and, and reading through white, old White Dwarf magazines. And the predecessor to that was Alan Weasel, which came out before White Dwarf. And finding out what we used to do all those years ago, I just can't believe it was 45 years since we started Games Workshop. But again, it's incredible how Workshop has prospered. I mean, we sold out in 1991 and uh, it was floated on the London Stock Exchange in 1993 and, and has grown ever since. And it's extraordinary success, albeit doing pretty much what we did at the same time. You know, we built up this Games Workshop experience where... You know, we sold our own products, our own shops, promoted through our own magazines and created this kind of hobby experience where we employed um, games players like us rather than traditional retailers because through their enthusiasm and knowledge, that really was a, you know, a place where people could learn as well as buy, buy their games and learn how to paint the figures, learn about the rules. So we wanted people to enjoy their time there rather than just being sold stuff and that kind of... That experience, I think, is 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 pretty much the same as it is today, albeit in a much more professional way and and much more grown up way in many ways. And it's extraordinary. You know, workshop is now worth three and a half billion pounds, which is it's an, an amazing. <laughs> it's I moved, fantastic. I moved into video games um, in the nineties, yeah. and uh, yeah, no regrets about that. And I'm still actively involved, even at my advanced stage. I'm on the board of eight video games companies i'm also chairman of sumo group plc headquartered in in, uh, in sheffield uh, another publicly listed company yeah do you think that the story aspect that you found through dungeons and dragons and through the game books do you think that that story aspect of games such as lara croft helped players get a similar sense of that sort of therapeutic feeling that you can get from reading because over the years Lots of those games with strong stories have repeatedly won awards. So there must be sort of some draw, perhaps, to the, the story aspect of, of games. Well, everyone likes a story, don't they? We, we all love stories. I mean, who doesn't? So in the early days of games, there wasn't the horsepower in the machines to be able to provide music of any quality or, or, or sound effects or particularly great graphics. And of course, there's no room for story. But now, in, in recent years, we've seen our stories becoming ever more, any more, every more important, as well as the gameplay itself. But when people ask me what's the most important things about a video game, I will say gameplay, gameplay, gameplay. You know, graphics and technology crucial, vital, of course, but still play a supporting role. And I would say, you know, story is up there, but it's. People buy games for the gameplay experience, the mechanics, as that's the paramount feature of any game. Yeah. But then you've got games like Skyrim, which I would say is very similar to your game books, you know, where there is a big story, but people can go wherever they like. There's that agency again where it's the multiple choice, isn't it? Well, yes, of course. Skyrim and Dark Souls as well is kind of open world RPGs where 
where you can take on a role and go in these fantastic journeys of the mind uh, with other players, you know, multiplayer online games, happy days. And you can see more and more how video games, technology through the, the, the platforms and the consoles and PCs themselves allow for a much more compelling experience. And, and this pervasive broadband gets better and bigger over time. That allows the gameplay experience to be more, more, more um, immersive and more compelling experience. I mean, you know, we're, we're human beings; we are social animals, and the more you can get to that social uh, behavior, the more fun a game will be. It adds an additional kind of meta level of of enjoyment. Uh, which is which you play a single player is well can, to my mind is can't be as much fun. I mean, if you if you go for a wonderful meal or look at the best sunset in the world on your own, that's not going to be as good as it is doing it with somebody else. So the more games become massively social, the more games have persistent worlds, the more games have user generated content, the, the more that. You know, you can personalize worlds. The more you can communicate with your people, the way that the metaverse is now a third place inside games where you don't just play together; you can hang out together. The more the games industry will continue to grow. I mean, this is a game. The game video games industry is now an industry worth you know 150 billion dollars a year. Three billion people now play games, and there's still huge chunks of of the world that hasn't really got off the ground yet in games playing. So I think games helped define us of who we are as human beings. We, we enter this world, we learn through play, we interact with everything. And, and that's the best way of learning. And I would say games are effectively a contextual hub for learning uh, and you can learn through play. And I think that's not always spoken about uh, in the media who tend to criticize games for for content that shouldn't be played by children anyway, and games are rated the same way films are. So an 18-game Hello should not be played by children. But if you could part your prejudice against one or two titles and think cognitively what's happening when you're playing a game, you can't get through a game without problem-solving. Again, you can't get through a Final Fantasy game book without problem-solving. And we are problem-solving animals, so that ticks a big box. So there's a, there's a great plus right there from being able to problem solve. You learn a game intuitively. No one really teaches you how to play. You learn through trial and error, but you're not punished for making a, a mistake. You're encouraged to try again. So it's not like a, an examination, which is a binary, you got it right or wrong. You're either able or less able. You're not suddenly categorized in a, in a win-loss situation situation you know you're encouraged to play try again and over time everyone could be a winner so everyone should effectively pass that exam it's just that we all learn at different rates but in a game we can all be you know judged as 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 winners rather than losers and games really enable creativity i mean minecraft digital lego for want of a better expression, you build these wonderful 3D architectural worlds, share them with your friends, and children can learn in context about the world. A child can apply the heat of a furnace in the game to silica sand and create glass, take that glass, put it in their world. They won't forget that. If they were told by somebody in the front of the class that fact, and their mind's drifting off about something else, they likely forget that. 
they'll certainly forget it after the exam. But having done it with their own being, that should remain with them or cement itself longer in their memory than it would otherwise. Games like Roller Coaster Tycoon really are a management simulation. Understanding the physics of design, the rides in that world, understanding the pricing models necessary to get people to go on your rides, understanding staffing levels required to run those rides. This is a management simulation. And if people still don't understand the power of games through, through learning through the power of games, think if and when we're able to fly again, how the pilot learned to fly. Would you prefer that pilot learned by reading a book? Uh, how many degrees do you turn the earlier on? I can't remember now. Or using simulation software, which is effectively a game, but without the scoring. So it's that learning by doing, that kind of, as I say, that, that context that I think is a great plus for games that is usually missed by the by education. Mm. And like you said, with the the fighting fantasy books, sort of video games before video games were there, you weren't afraid to use complex narratives, complex decisions, difficult problems, new words that that, like you said earlier, children are really excited to learn and try and try and try until until they get to the end and it's the proper ending. It's it's a nice escape, I think, for children. And they don't mind failing. You know, failure is a success work in progress and you're encouraged to try again. You're not suddenly told you failed. End of. And that's what I find wrong about the examination system. Yeah. Is, is there a particular book or a game that you would recommend to someone who maybe wants a nice moment of escape and sort of therapy and fun and enjoyment. A Final Fantasy game book or somebody else's books? Any book you like. Feel free to go fighting fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to recommend a Final Fantasy game book to, uh, to children age 10 or 40. <laughs> but, uh, the, the ones, the most, my most popular ones are probably City of Thieves or Death Trap Dungeon. But for other books, I definitely I mean, recommend... You know, the ones that I enjoy from, let's say, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. I, I loved his spontaneous prose attitude to writing. He really felt he was living in the moment and trying to cross America in that excitement of being on the road and, and all the thrills and adventure of the moment. And, you know, the way he writes in that sort of that style of can't stop, can't stop, can't stop. And yeah, that's that's what gets me excited. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and joining me for this lovely interview. My pleasure. An absolutely brilliant chat with one of my all-time favourite people, Ian Levingston, who brought us so many brilliant things. Not least, the fighting fantasy game books, which if you have never read one, go buy yourself a fighting fantasy book. They are amazing. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought it was super interesting. Had great fun chatting to Ian. As always, follow us on Twitter at Shelf Healing with a little underscore between shelf and healing. Thanks as always to Nicholas Patrick for our music. And I'll be back next week with another episode of Shelf Healing Bibliotherapy Interviews. Bye.